Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Barbican Screen Talks. Hello and welcome to Barbican Screen Talks. Every month we share conversations with some of the most prominent figures in cinema, recorded and preserved by the Barbican since the early 90s. So far in the series, we've re-released in-depth discussions of films including The Falling, High Rise and The Wind That Shakes the Barley. In this screen talk, we turn to the visionary 1997 debut of a Hollywood actress turned writer and director. Casey Lemons began her career playing supporting roles such as Jodie Foster's roommate in Silence of the Lambs and Nicolas Cage's victim in Vampire's Kiss. Frustrated by the limited opportunities available for black actresses in Hollywood, she started to write using time between auditions to pen short stories and scenes for friends to perform in acting classes. Her debut film, Eve's Bayou, started out as a novel. Lemons turned it into a script and, after a tortuous four years trying to get the film made, finally got the green light, thanks to the star power of Samuel L. Jackson. A melodramatic coming-of-age tale rich with southern Gothic atmosphere, Eve's Bayou follows the wealthy Batiste family over a long, hot summer in the swamps of 1960s Louisiana. The film has an incredible ensemble cast, centering around an astonishing performance from the then 10-year-old Journey Smollett. Samuel L. Jackson plays the family's promiscuous patriarch Lewis, and legendary singer and actress Diane Carroll makes a memorable appearance as a latter-day voodoo queen, El Zora. Eve's Bayou's unusual perspective and subject matter proved a huge hit with audiences, and it garnered awards worldwide, including the Independent Spirit Prize for Best First Feature. Widely viewed as a classic of contemporary black cinema, the film has been cited as an influence on films like Beasts of the Southern Wild and Beyoncé's visual album Lemonade. In the 20 years since Eve's Bayou was first released, Casey Lemons has gone on to make several more successful films, and is currently attached to direct the film adaptation of Zadie Smith's book On Beauty. But now, back to 1998 and the conversation you're about to hear. Lemons discusses what it was like to make her first film while also pregnant with her first baby, and she reveals why she's not too concerned with her films having crossover appeal beyond an African-American audience. I'm Eleni Jones, and this is Barbican Screen Talks with Casey Lemons. Okay, um, Casey, do you want to tell us how you actually developed this amazing project? Um, I was at a point in my career where I was very frustrated. And, you know, I had a good career. I mean, I worked a lot. Uh, and for a woman, for an African-American woman, I was fortunate. 
But I was at a point in my career where I felt that I needed an emotional, artistic release that I wasn't getting doing the, the roles that I was doing. You know, black girl best friend, black girl next door. Um, and I never got that kind of um, rush, you know, of emotion, that, that cathartic release. And it started to depress me. So I decided to take pilot season off. Uh, the pilot season is when you audition for all the new TV shows that, that are happening. And I decided to take pilot season off, which it goes on for about three months, and try and write this story that had been in my head for years. So I wrote East Spy You. In those three months, it was um, April 92. How much did it cost to make? Uh, and then it's a very long process, of course, to sure, go from sure. writing the script sure. to making the movie. It cost about $4 million in production. Mm -hmm. Or I stopped counting it $4 million. Sure. Right, right around $4 million. So how did, how did you uh, make the hook up with Samuel Jackson? How did that come about? Uh, I directed a short film called Dr. Hugo. And Sam got his hands on his managers, got their hands on the script and the short film. And the short film has this very, uh, it's kind of a piece of Eve's Bayou, but it has its own integrity as a short film. Uh, Vondi Curtis Halls, my husband, played the doctor in his very sexy kind of charismatic role. And Sam saw that, and he hadn't played that kind of role. You know, he'd been playing like drug dealers and criminals, with, you know, sure. he's very good at. But um, he had never gotten to play, you know, the sexy, charismatic, Clark Gable type of character, and so he, he really sought the material out and um, wanted to be that guy. So I got lucky, <laughs> very lucky. Moving into the film, I mean, how much of Casey is actually in these bio? I think that, I have a threefold answer. I think that everybody is walking around, or not, maybe not everybody, but at least anybody who has any desire to write is walking around with some, their great, novel in their head, you know, the, an, a great idea, everybody's got an idea, and Eve's Bayou was my novel, I thought one day I'd write this novel, and so it's completely fiction. Um, on the other hand, I think that when any writer writes about a family, some of their family's going to get in it, some of their neighbor's family, some of their friend's family, and also the way that your family gets in it is not necessarily linear. There's a lot of me and Eve and there's also a lot of me and Moselle, and in, in, in really in all the women in the piece. I think it's completely, totally fiction, and I like to be given credit for having <laughs> the imagination, but my sister says, um, <laughs> says that I stole a couple of things <laughs> from the way we talked to each other, the, the way we use language. Um, she called me rabbit, uh, she read me Shakespeare, always got to play the women's parts. And you steal little bits of things. Sure. Yeah. Let's take the first question from the floor. Right. Yeah. You over there, please. Hi, it's Ellen, back again to help out with some difficult-to-hear audience questions. What was the time period between taking your novel to film companies and the movie getting made? Well, I started right after I wrote it. Uh, I wasn't going to show it to anybody. My, actually, my husband convinced me to show it to my acting agent because I didn't know who else to show it to, and he showed it to the literary head of that agency, who became very, very enamored of it. And so that happened quickly, and he started sending it out. But we sent it out for four years, and people passed on it. And we'd give them another opportunity to pass on it the next year. <laughs> so we went to every company in Los Angeles at least twice in a period of four years. I think that's an interesting question, because it obviously brings us on to the point about how difficult is it to actually make films of this nature? and particularly in, in uh, Hollywood. 
I think it's difficult to make any film okay. in Hollywood. People want so badly to say no. Sure. Um, you have to, a producer said to me recently, you have to set up the yes. And setting up the yes is attaching major talent, you know, or giving, giving them reasons why it's a good idea. But Eve's Bayou, you know, that was nobody's idea um, of a good idea, you know what I mean? They're, they're, it was a soft film, it was a period piece, it had a lot of women in it, the lead was 10, you know, they thought I was crazy. And there were people that said, well, you know, if you attach a major star, you know, maybe we'll do it at this company. If you got somebody like, well, Sam Jackson. And then, you know, the next year I got Sam and I went back to that company and they're like, no, no. <laughs> you know, so, so even with Sam attached, it wasn't easy, but it became a whole lot easier because I set up the yes, you know, I gave him a reason to make the movie. But you also had uh, very black subject matter, right. which obviously puts it in a different league. I mean, do you feel that... Um, the success of his buyer, success of, say, Soul Food and Waiting to Exhale has actually created a path maybe for a different kind of movie to be made. Oh, I definitely think so. Right. It's a huge part of the, of the fun, you know. It's sure. a huge part of the joy is, is, is opening up a door, you know. I mean, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, um, to show that there's an audience. Sure. Because it, it, takes, it takes Hollywood a very long time to, to believe that there's an audience for our different kinds of movies, and so I definitely hope it helps. Okay. It's a lot of pressure, because we thought, well, if those films don't succeed, you know, which, which might easily have happened, then, you know, is the door going to close further, and they're going to be able to say, well, you know, Eve's Bayou didn't, didn't make any money, so therefore we're not going to green light, you know, wh whoever sure. else's film. So what, what did it gross in the end? A domestically, 15. 15. Before okay. video. Excellent. <laughs> So, so the idea of these films actually providing a base for crossing over, do you think um, that may actually create some form of template for the future? I mean, how do you see the, 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 story, the nature of the stories being told you know, um, in the future? I think that the pressure doesn't have to be on us as African-American filmmakers to make a film that crosses over. Right. You know, my point was just to say there's an African-American audience that's dying to see something like this, you sure. know, something different. Um, you know? But the fact that it crossed over was a miracle and a, and a beautiful thing, but I wouldn't put that weight on every film. Sure. You know, I mean, there are many films that are perfectly wonderful that the African-American audience loves, like Soul Food, that, that really didn't really cross over, but still made $40 million or, or more. Sure. So, I mean, I think I would have been satisfied with just the African-American audience. That it crossed over was a beautiful thing because everybody told me it wouldn't. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, if I can make a human drama that anybody can relate to, I'd written this script and I would take it to these companies and everybody says, it's so beautiful, it's, a, it's so beautiful, but you know, we can't make it here, who's the audience? And after about the hundredth meeting, I started saying, well, why aren't people like you the audience? I mean, why wouldn't, so no, 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 you know, you know the white audience just won't, uh, won't go and see a movie like this. And, and, and I thought, well, God, that's just such a negative statement, sure. you know? But I, I would have been happy with the African-American audience. I'm, I'm very, very happy at Crestover. Excellent. Let's take another question. Had you always intended to direct the film, or did that happen as you went along? You know, I went through several different phases of it. When I first wrote it, I thought I'd direct it one day when I'm older and smarter, you know. <laughs> but I wasn't intending it to happen that fast. Then when it started happening fast, we set out looking for directors. 
And in the process of talking to directors and trying to find somebody to, to, to direct it, I mean, fortunately, people weren't banging down my door to direct it, you know. But in the process of trying to talk about who we should get to direct it, I started to have a queasy feeling that it was a very delicate piece of material that could be ruined extremely easily. And, you know, my producers are saying, um, you know, well, we've got to find somebody, you know, somebody sexy. What's a sexy idea for a director? And, and I, I woke up one day, and it was my birthday, and I thought, I mean, the writer directing it is always kind of a sexy idea. You know, it's, it's a first-time woman who wrote the script, and so I presented that to them. And they said, what are you, crazy? <laughs> but they didn't say it for very long. I had a wonderful producer, and, and he said, what he said was, well, make a short film and we'll see if you can direct drama. I'd been to film school and I directed kind of docudramas. He said, let's do a short film together and see if you have the chops. And so we did uh, that short film, Dr. Hugo, which is how Sam got attached. Go ahead. How did you find Journey Smollett, who plays Eve? Journey was the last person that we cast. And it was interesting because I'd done, you know, 400 meetings and, and people would say, how are you going to find the little girl? And I said, oh, I'll find her. I, I know she's out there, and I'll know her when I see her, because she, I had a vision of this child, you know. And then in talking to children and meeting children, wonderful little actresses, I mean, you know, but just, you know, sweet and precocious and um, cute, you know, and I was like, oh, no, you know, it won't work. And it became very serious to me, but still I had faith that I would find her. And then I cast everybody else in the whole entire movie. I'm on location, three weeks away from shooting, and I don't have this lead. And finally I woke up one day, and it's, I, I lay on the floor of my little condominium. It's like, you have misled these people. They are coming down to Louisiana, you know, for no money, to the swamps, and you don't have the lead of your movie, you know? You're going to get killed. And my casting director called me in Louisiana and said, can you fly back to L.A.? I found this little girl. And I flew back, and I had little girls reading every scene in the movie, you know, when it's such an important part. Sure. Um, they read every scene in the movie. Journey read two scenes. And I sent her out of the room, and I turned to everybody else and said, that's the kid. But you were in production both with your first film and also first baby. How did you manage to uh, juggle the two? Well, an interesting thing happens over a period of four years of trying to make a movie, <laughs> which is that you become determined to do it, you sure. know? And um, the fact that I was pregnant was not going to stand in the way of making the movie. I mean, sure, there were moments when I thought, you must be crazy. Sure. But um, there was a moment in time that it was going to happen, and I was going to be there prepared. I mean, luck is being in the right place at the right time, prepared, you know, when the moment happens. And so I had a moment, and I was going to run with it, and the moment happened to be just after I gave birth. So we managed. It's great. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So... What are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. 
Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I mean, speaking of fate, so I mean, the film actually delves quite heavily in the area of voodooism and so on. I mean, how much uh, research, personal research, went into delving into those areas and, and bringing it into the film? A little bit, but you know, I almost researched it after I wrote it. Okay. I, I, I really wrote it, and then I went back and researched it, and I was like, oh good, you know? Sure. Um, some of the words of spells that Mazel says are Marie Laveau spells. She was a famous uh, voodooine. So in that way, I researched it, but there was a whole lot of things that that I didn't really research, and then afterwards I found out were kind of authentic. You know? For example? Um, well, folklore about the town, for instance, I had written a short story years before I ever wrote East Bayou. I wrote a short story about the town of East Bayou and how, how it started, the kind of history lesson at the beginning of the movie. Uh, this, you know, Jean-Paul Baptiste freed the slave woman Eve because she saved his life with, with magic. She saved his life with her African um, magic and they had 16 children and beget this town. And I was in pre-production, and my production designer's in the back of the van. He says, Casey, listen to this. And he's reading a book, and he reads me about this town where the, the woman was freed for having saved the life of the mistress from cholera. And she and the master went on to have all these children that everybody claims to be descended from. It's in the Cane River Valley in Louisiana. And so, I mean, that was, it was uncanny, actually. Sure, it, was, sure. it, was, um, it made me feel, not to be goofy about it, but it, it made me feel a very deep and soulful sure. connection to, to the place and the material. There was something that I feel that I was tapping into. Sure, that's great. Let's take another question. The pace of the film is breathtaking. How did you achieve that? The pace was really an interesting thing because movies in the United States are paced a certain way. Uh, certain types of movies are paced a certain type of way. But actually, the audience becomes desensitized. You become very used to seeing a certain type of edit and a certain type of pace. And it became, in the process of making the film, very important to me to let people move through space. And I got in a lot of, a lot of really horrible fights over um, the pace of the movie because I feel that I really want you to watch it. I want you, it means something to me for the little girl to walk out of the graveyard in the distance. It means something to me for her to walk into a dark house in silhouette and it's emotional for me. It was one of the, it was one of the biggest battles I fought for that pace. And um, I mean, sure, some people say it's slow, you know? Sure. But um, I feel that, that in the 70s, we used to be able to watch that. And Europeans can watch that. Why can't, why, in America, why can't you make, and certain directors do it all the time. John Sayles, you know, his films are always, always slow and they always have a certain pace. But I, I, why can't I do that? 
because I'm an African-American filmmaker. What's the next project you're working on? My next project is from a book called The Caveman's Valentine. And it's about a um, paranoid homeless composer living in a cave in Inwood Park at the edge of Manhattan and his delusions. And he, he kind of inadvertently solves a murder mystery. And it's interesting how similar I feel that it is to Eve's body. Everybody says, how is that similar? But it's an urban folktale. It's still a folktale, and it's very visual, and it has um, breaks from reality. And it stars Samuel Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> what is that going to production? Uh, hopefully, we're going to go into production in the fall. Wow. Yeah, That's unless Sam soon. takes another movie, which <laughs> hopefully you won't. We're coming on to Sam Jackson and uh, Diane Carroll. I mean, it must have been a mind-blowing experience to direct both of them at the same time. Yeah. How did you uh, manage that? I was very focused. I mean, I knew what I wanted, and sure. so I tried not to be intimidated by my actors. You know, different actors you talk to in different ways. Sure. You learn their personality and what they need, and what, you know, some people are really great the first take, and some people get it on the seventh take, and sure. some people like to be talked to, and some people don't like to be talked to, and so everybody's different. And I just tried to um, learn their personalities and what would work for them. Diane was somebody that I've been a huge fan of hers for a really long time. She's not that easy to approach. Um, and everybody comes up to her and says, oh, you're Julia, you know? And she just, she, she, you can see her back stiffen, and she doesn't like that. But I went up to her and I said, Miss Carol, you know, I'm a huge fan of yours. And she said, yes. <laughs> and, and I said, um, I saw you do Agnes of God on Broadway. And she said, oh. You did. You know, and it was just this whole different, I mean, she, it was a great reference. It was her favorite thing that she's ever done. Just happened to be the perfect reference, you know, and, 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 and do you want me to do a movie? You know, she got very excited. And, but how did you manage uh, to get her to play the role of uh, El Zora? Well, um, she liked the role when she read it. We got progressively freakier after she got on location. Um, <laughs> Yeah, can you elaborate? <laughs> uh, well, there's some concern because she was so beautiful. And everybody kept saying, uh, you know, she's so beautiful. I'm like, yeah, well, you let me hire Diane Carroll. Don't you know what she looks like? But, you know, how are you going to make her scary? And so I thought about it, you know. And um, so one day I knocked on her dressing room door, you know. Miss <laughs> Carroll, I've got an idea. Um, and I showed her some pictures of, of you know, the Yoruba um, ritual makeup. And I said, you know, this woman is not authentic. Elzor is not authentic, but she borrows from authentic traditions. You know, she's, she, is, she is kind of a charlatan, you know. But um, would it be fun for you, you know, Miss Carol, <laughs> to like put on this white face? And, um, and she said, let me think about it. <laughs> and then she said, okay. And then she went into makeup and they put it on her and she, she loved the way she looked. And then the next day she put the dot in the center of her hair. I was like, she put the, that dot on her face herself, and she got way, way into it in the eye makeup. <laughs> <laughs> Moving from adults to the children, I mean, the, the roles that they played were both complex and mature. Yeah. Was there concern about what you were actually exposing them to? Were they able to understand? Yeah. The great thing about making a movie is that you don't, the, the child does not have to be exposed to everything that the character is exposed to. You know, because of the way you're able to cut. So Eve never saw, for instance, in the carriage house, she never saw that. 
um, we'd say, okay, Sam and Lisa, stand over here. You know, that's your eye line. Sure. Act horrified. And if the child is a good actor, I mean, you kind of, you know, her mother had talked her through it. She knew what she was supposed to be seeing. She had an idea, but she doesn't have to see it, you know, because then I'm going to turn around and shoot Sam and, and Lisa. And so they're two different angles, sure. you know, sure. and that's movie magic. Um, so you can protect them to a certain extent. I mean, they have to have an understanding, a basic understanding of what the script was about. And both of these children did, and they both were comfortable with it. Brilliant. What was the funniest moment on set? Hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking. We had a lot of <laughs> we had a lot of laughs with Branford Marcellus. He's just a great. It's like Branford, would you like you know, walk through the swamp and be a ghost? You know, and he'd do anything incredibly good-naturedly. And so he was probably the funniest, uh, lightest person on the set, and those were some fun moments. I mean, it's so stressful that I can't say I like sat around guffawing <laughs> a lot, you know. Um, but I got some chuckles, but the, the party scene was, was pretty fun. The whole party scene was pretty fun. And fun can sometimes be in the very serious moments. Like King's Bar is very fun for me as a director. You know what I mean? That's a very fun thing to direct, Sam's death, you know. Um, <laughs> Let's take another question. How did you keep your focus and integrity while waiting for the film to be made? I really believed that it would happen, and I was ready to wait for the right people at the right time. And I'm probably uh, not supposed to ever talk about this, but there's actually somebody I turned down that was going to make the film because I thought they were going to make it wrong. I would rather have put it in a drawer and not never made it than to make it the wrong way. And so... Um, Who was that? I, <laughs> a very, very reputable film company, but they wanted a happy ending. They wanted a clean-cut ending. Sure. They wanted some things that, that I didn't want to, I didn't want to do because I had written it a certain way, and I, felt, I believed in that. And I don't know. I mean, I, I just have faith. Yeah. Someone at the back? You're now making films with bigger budgets. Are you worried your success will mean the Hollywood system has more control over you? Yeah, I've, I've had to do a lot of soul-searching about it, you know? And what I've decided is that uh, I'm not going to do it the system way. <laughs> I'm making my next film with the studio, but I'm making it through Jersey Pictures, which is this little company that Danny DeVito runs. They always do whatever they want to do, and they, they have a certain way of doing things, a very independent style. It's an insane film. I mean, it's just, it's just beautiful. And then um, talking beyond that film, I started to just really make some choices. I mean, I got offered some very tempting things, and I turned everything down. And I decided that I was going to, you know, do it my way, and, and we'll see how long that lasts. As an actor and director, did you consider acting in Eve's Bayou yourself? Yeah, there was a time when I did. There was a time when I did. But, you know, four years is a long time to think about how much work it is <laughs> to, to put a movie together. And then um, I was pregnant, you know what I mean? And I just had the baby when I started. It was just too much. And I could never have been as wonderful as they were, you know? I mean, I started auditioning actresses. and. And, you know, the whole concept of having actors to say words. And I thought, well, I can find these, these you know, wonderfully beautiful, fabulous women to do my movie. And so I, I, 
I wanted to watch. I wanted to sit back and watch. And... Are you planning any collaborations with your husband? We just wrote a script together. Great. Yeah, we just wrote a script. My husband's Vondi Curtis Hall. He's a filmmaker and an actor, and we just wrote a script together. So he directed Gridlock, didn't he? With he directed Gridlock, yeah, with Tupac and Tim Roth. Let's take another question. The press don't always support black films, particularly in Britain, but were they supportive of your film in America? I don't know that they would have been. We started to get a very scary feeling because we'd gotten turned down from some festivals. Um, there were some people that were definitely not supportive of it. Uh, they called it overly ambitious. It's like, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> I shouldn't have had the ambition to try and make it. You know, and so we. St I started to be frightened. And then a wonderful thing happened, which was we opened at the Telluride Film Festival. We got three standing ovations. It was it was a huge hit. And the other thing that happened was Roger Ebert saw it in Toronto. And Roger Ebert is, you know, a very powerful American critic. And he was the first person to say, this is Oscar worthy, you know, this is a, a movie that you need to see. And he, his, he wrote a love letter, a love letter review. And, you know, the press, they, they follow, <laughs> you know, they, they follow a trend. And so he was, he was the champion. He was my champion critic. And then the Yellow Times and the New York Times sure. came. So we actually we had tremendous critical support. What advice would you give for you know budding writer or filmmaker in, in the UK in terms of realizing their own vision? I found film school tremendously important. Film school and making short films. I don't think I could have gotten to direct these by if it hadn't been for my short film. That's one thing. And also the power is absolutely in the script. If you have a script that you own and you don't uh, sell it, and you want to direct it, and people are interested in the material, they're going to have to buy you as the director at some point. You know? So hold on to your best script. You know? Hold on to it for yourself. And put everything, put everything into it. Writing art should be painful and embarrassing and difficult. And you should bleed on the pages. You know? I mean, it, should, it, should, it should have your blood in it. And so I would say just make it as good as you can possibly make it. Okay. Of all the rewards or awards you've received for the movie, what's been the best accolade? I mean, it's not so much the accolades. I mean, don't... Um, it's, a, it's a major accomplishment. Um, but the beautiful thing about it is finding so many people that have talent and finding the best of their talent and putting it on film, you know? And then being the director, I kind of feel responsible for all of their talent. So that's a great thing. So it's like you get to use other people's talent, you know? It's like Terrence Blanchard's score is my score to use by you, you know? So you get to take credit for other people's brilliance. Like, you know, my director of photography, she's wonderful. And, and um, it's, it's a very wonderful collaboration. And so I think my biggest reward was bringing out the best work. Everybody worked 150%. They gave, we had no money. And my best reward is having made a movie that everybody that worked on is very proud of. Right at the back. In cinema, black men are often portrayed as unfaithful and bad fathers. Are depictions of male black characters a challenge for filmmakers? So you're talking about the positive... Yeah, the, the positive, positive images. I feel that... I don't feel that as an artist I can be hampered by... Um, 
having to portray a certain character a certain way, okay? I think it's an art killer. I mean, I think other people can make that, but I call it propaganda or commercial. I mean, I try and make made a film that's honest to me, but I do understand the question. I mean, I thought that I would be successful with Louis Batiste if you understood him and related to him, even though he was a flawed person. Um, his sister Moselle is also flawed, and in the same way, and she says it over and over. We're a lot the same, my brother and I. Um, most people, to me, are neither good nor bad. They're, they're in that gray area of, of you know, being flawed and wanting to be better and wanting to do the right thing. And I think that Lewis falls in that range. I mean, I think he's a very strong character. And it's a difficult question because I try not to think about it too much because I feel it would, I don't want it to get into my head and affect my art. I want to just make true art and I want to be true to my characters. I want them to be people that I understand and that they reflect uh, my experience and what, what I see around me and there are many, many different types of men. I mean, Grey Raven to me is a wonderful character, the character my husband plays. He's a, a wonderful, romantic, strong character. And the caveman in the new film that I'm doing with Sam Jackson is a wonderful, strong character. So I'm, I'm definitely interested in making films where that's not the black man's flaw, but, but on the other hand, I don't want it to poison my writing to the point where I'm making propaganda. I think propaganda can be a good thing and other people can do it, but that's not what I feel that I, I should do. Uh, final question? Yeah, go ahead. Can you briefly give us the process for making a film? <laughs> um. Basically, there, there, okay, there are three. Um, there's pre-production, there's production, and there's post-production. Um, pre-production is where you plan the whole movie. You might draw the whole movie. In our case, we did. We storyboarded the whole movie, so we have a book of the way the movie looks. You make your shot list. Um, you decide what you're going to shoot ahead of time. So you're prepared so that if you only had 37 days to shoot, we only had 37 days to shoot, but we had 14 weeks of pre-production. Okay, so you plan for 14 weeks what you're going to shoot in 37 days. You shoot in 37 days and it's like a race. You know, you, you're exhausted beyond belief and, and it's like running a race. And then post-production is the longest part of the process. That can last eight months. You know, where you, where you go and you refine it and you, you find the movie and you um, put all the other elements together, the music, the sound, um, certain visual elements, um, dissolves and stuff like that and the editing process. Okay. Last question. You mentioned you were depressed before writing the novel. Did writing it help lift your depression? Absolutely. It saved my life. I mean, it really did, but, and I, I got it out, you know, I cried on, my, on the keys of my computer all the time, I, you know, I acted all the parts in my head, and it, was, I, it absolutely was what the doctor ordered, it was what I needed, you know, I needed, I needed that as an artist. Great. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for making this a really special evening, and on behalf of the audience, I'd also like to wish you, you know, the best in whatever you do in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for Thanks for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk with Casey Lemons. To support Film at the Barbican and make sure you don't miss an episode, you can rate and subscribe to Screen Talks via iTunes or Acast or visit barbican.org.uk slash screentalksarchive. Also, please come and find us at Barbican Centre on social media to share your thoughts. We'll be back with another exclusive conversation from the archives next month.
Roads Weekend is a dynamic new festival coming to the Lowry in March 2020, celebrating the rich musical and literary history of the Northwest through the power of words and stories. Words Weekend brings together some of the top voices in music, politics, literature, and spoken word. Tickets on sale now from thelowry.com. Celebrate the power of words this March at the Lowry. With a packed programme of talks, free workshops and panel discussions, there's something for everyone. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.